2,500 years ago, the Buddha compared the untrained mind to a wild monkey. Wild monkey. And after two days of sitting and walking, silence, it would be difficult to disagree uh, with that statement. I think it's a very wise and perceptive statement. And as much as the world has changed, uh, the nature of the mind uh, hasn't changed all that much. Especially in the first few days, and even especially especially so, uh, for uh, new, new retreatants, the first few days, one can feel like you're, you're, you're stuck in the trenches, uh, that it's kind of muddy and dark, cold. Uh, you don't feel like you have the right tools. Uh, there's not a lot of glory in the practice. Uh, there's nobody really appreciating your practice so much. Uh, and uh, it's easy to get a bit uh, discouraged, as Larry mentioned this afternoon. What's surprising is that this experience is a surprise. In other words, the fact that our minds are like this and that we're actually surprised by that is a surprise. It's telling us something. And what it's telling us is not so much that uh, the retreat is is specifically designed to bring up all the bad stuff in us, uh, but rather it comes out of the fact that we're beginning to pay a little bit more close attention to what's going on in the mind. You know, the, the uh, fantasies and the planning and all the dialogues that we're having on the cushion, the unpleasant body sensations. Uh, sure, some of it comes out of adjusting to the sitting and walking. We're certainly doing a lot of that. But some of it is accumulated tension that we've brought into the retreat. You know, the unpleasant sensations and the aversion to it, you know, the kind of contracting around it. The sleepiness and dullness, that's one of the favorite ones in the first couple of days. Uh, No matter how uh, well-intended you are, no matter what your aspirations are, um, to be confronted hour after hour with sleepiness or dullness, it's it's a tough energy to to work with. Um, And then we have uh, sleepiness on one hand, and sometimes it all happens all in one sitting. Uh, You can be very sleepy and dull and just slugging away on the cushion, and then shift over into feelings of intense restlessness, feeling really bored, wanting to, to, to get up and, and run out of the hall. Uh, and then finally, uh, the state of mind of self-doubt, which of course comes up uh, very frequently at the beginning of a retreat. Uh, fortunately, um, that tends to change as the retreat goes on. We start settling down and we get a little bit more confidence back. But the self-doubt, it it comes up, and it comes up because of all this other stuff that's coming up, stuff that we don't really want to see, stuff that um, uh, we don't want to really be dealing with. And that leads to a lot of self-doubt, thinking that we're doing something wrong. That's a common misconception that new retreatants have, is because all this stuff is coming up, there's an idea sometimes that we're, we're not doing it right. We're not doing it right. But the fact is, you probably are doing it right. And it's still coming up. Because what you're doing is paying attention to the way things are. That's what vipassana means. Vipassana means to see things as they are. And believe it or not, one of the most significant, if not the most significant insight you can have, is to see the untrained mind. And to to see how much suffering there is in the untrained mind. To 
to see the discontent that uh, when the mind is restless and moving around all the time and reaching out for fantasies and always looking outside of itself for satisfaction, well, that causes discontent. And why that's such an important insight is because oftentimes if we don't see that up close, and that's one of the fruits of a retreat, is we get to see it very, very directly. There's very few escapes. And by seeing it clearly, it helps motivate us to do something about it. Because even though the mind, the untrained mind, is like a wild monkey, there's something we can do about it. We don't have to resign ourselves to that fact. We don't have to be resigned to, that's the way it is and that's the way it's going to be. I mean, the genius of the Buddha, real true genius of the Buddha, a profound respect and appreciation for his teachings all the time. And the genius of the Buddha was the fact that uh, he realized that our suffering and discontent, the source of our suffering and discontent, was not in the way things are, but it's in the way we relate to the way things are. That's an important teaching. It's how we're relating to the moment-to-moment experience that's bringing us suffering. It's not the fact that we're having all these experiences of restlessness and doubt, agitation, fantasy of mind. That's not what's causing the suffering. What's causing the suffering is how we're responding to that, those particular states of mind, those particular energies. And that's where, we're, we, that's where the work of practice is. Practice isn't about getting rid of restlessness or agitation or sleepiness or dullness or the fantasy mind. But rather it's learning to respond to it with attention. With attention. That's the big shift. That's the big shift in relationship. Instead of reacting to it, instead of getting lost in it, we're trying to do something very different. And it's very different than the way we usually relate to these experiences. Because we're carrying around this untrained mind out there too. But there are so many distractions. There's so many things that are pulling us out. There's so many places where we have uh, created so many different escapes so that we don't have to confront this. You know, we feel restless, we do something. We feel sleepy, go to sleep. You know, take, drink a cup of coffee. You know, this country is totally hooked on coffee. Uh, you know, we're running ourselves into the ground, but we're drinking lots of coffee. Uh, you know, that's what we do when we feel sleepy. On the cushion, well, you've got to sit there. You've got to sit there. You've got to sit there with the way things are. Not so easy. But what the Buddha discovered was that in working with all these conditioned states, all these states that are impermanent, they're rising and passing away out of a certain set of conditions, you know, restlessness arises, boredom, all those are conditioned states. What he discovered was that the path to the unconditioned was in understanding and cultivating wisdom through the, through the conditioned. In other words, taking the stuff of life, taking the stuff of what our minds and hearts are made out of, and transforming that so that we begin to taste a happiness and a peace that's not so conditioned, something that lasts, something that's ours, something that moves with the way things are. No great surprise, no great surprise that it takes a lot of effort. I'm sure I don't have to tell anybody 
in this room, new or old, that fact that it does take a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort just to get yourself in the hall sometimes. You know, when you're out there wandering around, doing your walking, you know, looking around, and then the bell rings, and you know, that feeling of slight dread, coming back into the hall, having to sit again, you know, knowing that you're going to be very sleepy, knowing that there's a lot of restlessness in the mind, and just to come in and do it requires a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort to sit there and to sit there relatively still. And not only to sit there relatively still, but look reasonably serene at the same time. <laughs> that takes effort. You know? I mean, I know what's going through your mind. I've heard it over and over again. And yet, most everybody looks pretty serene when they're sitting. So I know uh, there's some effort in that one. Okay? But the kind of effort that uh, this, this particular practice requires, and it certainly does require this of us, it asks us of this of us, is, is a different kind of effort than we're used to. And a lot of times we carry over the kind of effort that we've been conditioned, uh, that we've um, invested our lives in a certain kind of effort, and the effort that, we're, that we've uh, trained ourselves to do is, is the, uh, the effort to achieve the effort to achieve, the effort to attain, the effort to get, the effort to get. Well, that kind of effort doesn't work in this practice. That kind of effort doesn't work in, that, in this practice because the, our minds are not under our control. They don't do what we beck. They do, the mind does what it does. And so we need to learn a different kind of effort. And the effort that the Buddha discovered and, and he discovered this the hard way. I think it's important to recognize. You know, sometimes we idealize people, and, and I think the Buddha is somebody um, that a lot of people do idealize. Um, and I, I certainly have a lot of respect for what he's done. Uh, important to recognize just how much effort he put into the practice. And in some ways, it, uh, a lot of his lessons came very hard. You know, he was near death in, in many different points in his practice because of a lack of understanding, because of ignorance on his part in terms of what would bring peace. He didn't know how to experience the unconditioned peace. It took him a long time. It took him six years, which actually isn't very long, I think about it. <laughs> but the way he worked at it, it's a long time. But it's a balanced effort. Larry often says, and I've heard this lots of times from Larry, both in talks and in conversation, it's a marathon. It's a marathon. You know, it really is a marathon. Uh, no kidding. Um, it takes gentle perseverance, gentle determination, over and over and over again. It takes being as continuous as you can be as continuously attentive as you can be, but being very gentle and not striving. The Buddha compared wise effort. He talked a lot about effort because he knew how important it was. He talked a lot about what it meant to be wise, to make wise effort. In the way he compared wise effort, he compared it to tuning a lute, tuning the strings of a lute. And that if you tune the strings too tight, chances of the strings breaking are quite great, and it's also very difficult to play. 
If you tune them too loose, well, then it's really impossible to make music. It's impossible to create harmonious tunes. And so it's this balance between striving too tight and not putting enough effort, not putting enough energy into the practice. And whether you're brand new or whether you're old, you always have to be tuning that one. You always have to be mindful of the kind of effort you're making in practice. And to learn to get, you know, part of self-knowledge is learning. Well, sometimes some of us as drivers, you know, some of us tend to be kind of lax, and lackadaisical, and kind of, uh, not really quite willing to stretch into difficulty. The drawback with striving, and I, personally I feel like I know this, this particular approach pretty well, Certainly in my first few years, uh, I was a card-carrying member of the Strivers Club. I mean, uh, practice was new. Nobody really had a perspective on practice, what it, what it meant to work hard, and uh, what it meant to be striving. And we, we, re- we received a lot of reinforcement in many ways for our striving. I don't think you do, although I think sometimes it's, it feels like we're cracking the whip up here. Um, but I, I, I do think that... Um, the teachings are more mature. I think we, we bring more maturity to practice. Um, and I think our effort tends to be more balanced in general. But certainly in the early days, um, a tremendous amount of striving in a lot of people's practice. And it created, it, it, it burnt people out in some ways. I think that's the danger of striving, is that it's easy to get discouraged. If you're trying too hard, if, you, if you're, you're really attached to making something happen, that's the, that's the kind of suffering that the Buddha described as the attachment to becoming. That's the kind of dukkha that the Buddha described, the attachment to becoming. It's an inability to settle into the way things are. And it's this striving, this trying to make something happen, this always moving into the next moment, never really settling down, never just being with the experience from moment to moment, but trying, trying, trying. And that trying shows up in a lot of different ways. So what's balanced effort? That's a good question. Well, balanced effort is different for everybody, first of all. And everybody needs to find that out for themselves. Uh, but a few kind of helpful hints, little signs to sort of show that we may be striving is, in, say, in working with the breath. Start with the breath, because that's what we're doing. One form, one expression of striving is trying to control the breathing. There's some little, you know, little secrets and little tips that older students, people who have been practicing for, I'll learn where there's a little bit of controlling of the breath and then a little bit more calming of the mind. You know, and then you learn, well, maybe if I make my breath a little bit longer, things might settle down a little bit. That kind of controlling creates tension in the long run. It doesn't lead to the kind of unconditioned peace. It creates a lot of tension. So being aware when you're controlling the breath, very important. And once again, balanced effort in working with the breath is not to not try to control the breath, because then once again you get hooked into trying to control it. The balanced approach is to recognize when you're controlling it, 
If you notice that you're controlling it in the in-breath, the out-breath, you know, get to know where, where those points are, where you're holding your breath, where, you, where you're controlling it. Because sometimes it's unconscious. We, we have a lot of conditioning around the breath, and there can be a lot of controlling coming from that place. But getting to know that and mindfully acknowledging the moment that you notice that you're controlling. Just mindfully acknowledging over and over again. Ah, controlling in the end. Ah, there's controlling again. There's controlling. No need to do anything about it. No need to change it. No need to, to, do, to interfere with it in any way. Just notice it in a very soft, non-judgmentally way. Ah, controlling. In-breath. Ah, controlling. Out-breath. Just noticing. And notice, see if you can pick it up at the moment that you start controlling it. Another way that striving shows up is the judging mind. Okay. Uh, this is something I had for years and years and years, especially on retreat. Uh, I had this notion that I should be able to pay attention to the breath every moment uh, of my meditation. And so every time my mind would wander, every time it would wander, there'd always be a judgment about it. There'd always be this, oh, I can't do this. And then there would be back to the breath. And then, oh, why did I wander? Back to the breath. But there'd always be this judgment. And occasionally that judgment would hook me in. It would start leading me down this road of self-doubt. I'd be thinking about my practice, thinking about what I should be doing differently. And I didn't recognize the judgment when it was there. And so balanced effort is to recognize when you're judging that wandering mind. And to see if you, and not to reinforce it, but to more and more see that the fact that the wandering mind is part of the practice. The wandering mind is not our enemy in this practice. As soon as you become mindful of the wandering mind, you're in the present moment. So it's a part of the practice. The wandering mind is an essential part of the practice. Because a lot of times that's what's going to be going on. And so to be present with what is, and that's where liberation is, to be present with what is, is to be present with the wandering mind. And lo and behold, as soon as you're mindful of the wandering mind, you're not wandering anymore. You're present. And then you come back to the breath. There doesn't need to be any judgment about the wandering mind, but you also have to watch out for the other side, which is being too lax. Because there's a strong tendency in the mind to find our thinking mind and that wandering mind much more interesting than the breath. There's a strong tendency to think of those fantasizing, those plans that you're making about your next winter vacation or what you're going to do when you get home or all the phone calls you're going to make. Those can be very, very seductive. Now, even though we ran away from those things very fast to get here, within two days, we're counting the days when we get back to that comfort, the familiarity, the relationships that are all waiting, whatever it is. Um, So the wandering mind is something to recognize, not to judge, but not to feed. And that requires a bit of restraint. In other words, when you notice that the mind is getting lost in its fantasizing and its planning, Acknowledge it, recognize it, and decide, make a conscious choice to come back to the breath. That's the practice now. That's the practice you're here for. You're not here to plan your life out. There's plenty of time to do that. You don't want to spend your retreat retreat that way. You want to cultivate that ability to be mindful and to be present with each moment of your experience. That's what you want to do. That's where you want to put your effort. Not in planning for the future. Planning for a future that is quite unpredictable. All our plans are, are, of course, happening in the present moment. 
but they're all, they have all to do with projection. So it's trying to stay in the present moment. And in, 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 in some ways, it requires a renunciation, you know, kind of renouncing of fantasy. It's a hard one. It takes time. But renouncing fantasy for what's real, for what's happening right now. And right now, it's the breath. Right now, it's the body. Right now, it's this moment, sitting, touching, breathing. Working with the breath in a balanced way. Staying fresh. Larry mentioned that earlier today. That's key. That's very important. And once again, the tendency is to go with the striving. There's a controlling sometimes or a holding on to the breath. You know, kind of, kind of like a, a clinging to the in-breath, a clinging to the out-breath. Um, being lax. A lot of times what happens when we start sliding into being kind of lax with our effort is that it becomes very mechanical. You know, we're just barely on the surface with the breath. We can kind of keep track of the fact that we're breathing while we're deeply engaged in some major fantasy or some major plan or some major strategy that we're developing. And somehow we still have that breath in the background. Okay? That's being too lax. You know, that's when the breath starts becoming too mechanical. That's when our practice starts slipping. So paying careful attention and being fresh, being present for each moment of that breath. You know, each breath is new. Each breath is a new, is a, is a new breath. It's not the same as the last breath. Working with pain, because that's certainly something probably, if I asked for hands, probably everybody in the room would raise their hands on this one. Have you been experiencing any discom- physical discomfort? Uh, it's pretty universal on retreat for a number of different reasons. I've already gone into some of them. How to work with pain in a balanced way. How to work with, a pa- with pain in a way that leads to greater peace is the bigger question. Um, the striving mind, of course, the, the striving model is to push through it. You know, to take it on as a challenge, to push through it. Kind of a macho attitude. Um, like I mentioned, I, I was a Tremendous striver in my early years, and some of you have heard this story, so you'll have to watch your breath while I talk about it. Uh, some of you haven't. Uh, before IMS was here, they had a three-month course. It was the first three-month Vipassana course in America. Certainly not the first three-month Vipassana course, but in America it was. It's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, but in America it was new and different. And uh, we were all very excited about it. And I was one of the, per- you know, one of the maybe 30 people that participated. And like I said earlier, um, we're more sophisticated, and more mature in our relationship to practice. And I was very uh, naive uh, about practice. Didn't know very much. Uh, maybe still don't. Um, but in Bucksport, um, three months is a long time to sit. Many of you have already done that. Uh, but it is a long time to sit. And, and back then, it was sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. It just never changed. Um, even some nights, there weren't talks. Uh, we'd go sometimes several days without a talk. We'd just be sitting, walking at evening. It was a tough, tough three-month course, I can tell you. Uh, it was hard work. And um, being this driver, I kind of appreciated all of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that feeling of aloneness and all that. Um, it, it, but one of the things that happened to me, as you can see, I sit on a meditation bench. I've been on this bench for a while. And uh, I used to sit in a round cushion. Uh, but then I found the bench, and I used the bench 
um, in Bucksport. And it was one of those handmade benches. People weren't making benches. You couldn't buy them. You made them yourself. So either I made it or a friend made it for me. And um, the bench was a very simple wooden bench, just like these. Only uh, there weren't any cushions for your benches uh, back then. Um, so um, I was sitting on this bench week after week, day after day. Lots of, lots of hours of sitting, and my concentration was pretty good. And I was sitting for long periods of time, a few hours, a few hours of, of sit. And uh, gradually, my butt, my butt really started to hurt uh, from sitting on this hard bench. Uh, and it, uh, so, of course, good yogi that I was, I, I started watching it, observing it, trying to be mindful of it. Um, I, actually, I thought it was a good thing. Uh, because I thought it would make me more concentrated, uh, more focused, more present. And so uh, I went on like this day after day, and every day it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And before I knew it, uh, I was in complete, utter agony sitting on this bench. And I remember, I remember one sitting. I can remember this sitting so, uh, so clearly. Uh, it was the first sitting in the morning, and I sat down on my bench, place that I thought I wanted to be. And within like three seconds, I was in utter agony from having my butt touch this bench. I, I don't know if it was inflamed or what, but it was really hurting. Okay? And I would watch that all day and all night. Uh, now you might ask, and it would be a very good question. It would be the right question to ask. Uh, why didn't I get a cushion? and put it on the bench. Uh, and it uh, occurred to me, of course. It occurred to me many, many times. Uh, but being somewhat stubborn and having an idea that this was kind of a good experience, something I needed to live through, um, I refused to do it. And so it went on for about a month. And um, I finally had some major insight and decided that I was going to let myself use a cushion. <laughs> I remember that sitting so well. It was like I was sitting on a cloud. And I was so peaceful and so happy. Uh, uh, it was like yesterday. I mean, it was, it was, it was such a relief. And uh, There was an important lesson in there for me. There was an important lesson that served me well later. Uh, because uh, after a while, I began to recognize the signs of this driving mind and also recognize all the aversion that was coming up for me. Because in many times, even though uh, I was deeply engaged in the practice, a lot of my inner life at that point was just screaming aversion uh, towards this pain, uh, that I wasn't settling down in a, in a, in a very deep way. Uh, so, uh, learning that one was an, is an important one. And, of course, I don't think you're going to make that mistake. But at the same time, you know, we do encounter pain. We do encounter tension in the body. And we do need uh, to work with it in a balanced way. So, there's a, a, extreme striving. And then there's more subtle forms of striving. But then there's also being too lax. And too lax means moving every time there's even a hint of discomfort in the body. Even if there's not even a hint there's anticipation of pain coming, uh, you move and shift just in case. Okay? Just in case. That's being too lax. Okay? That's, that's not putting enough effort. That's not stretching enough. 
That's not giving yourself enough chance to look at and observe pain. Because there is a lesson. There is something to learn in being able to observe discomfort. It's a very important part of the practice. It's an important part of our life. We don't have to look for it. You, know, you don't have to be looking for pain. We don't want to make a virtue out of it. But it's part of life. We need to know how to relate to it. To relate to it in a balanced way. In a way that's open. That's not so fearful. And we spend a lot of our time avoiding pain. An awful lot of our time avoiding pain. And that creates suffering. So learning to stretch a little bit when you're feeling uncomfortable. In other words, observe the sensation itself. You know, observe the sensation and see if, you, if the mindfulness is strong enough. You know, right now we're primarily with the breath. But if there's a strong sensation in the body that's uncomfortable going on, you should feel free to bring your attention there. Put a little of attention to, to the actual pain itself. Observe it for a little while. Also be aware of the fact that there's a relationship that the mind is forming to that particular sensation. And that relationship is often aversive. The mind doesn't like it. But those are two different processes. One process is the unpleasant sensation, and then the other one is what the mind is doing to it. And a lot of the suffering is, is what the mind is doing to it. Sure, it's unpleasant, but the mind is also making a lot out of it. It's doing things. It's contracting. It's tightening. It's creating a lot of fear or anxiety. And that's the suffering. It's so important. So if you can stretch a little bit when you're feeling uncomfortable, it gives you a chance to see that whole process. Then if you need to move, you know, you watched it for a few minutes or uh, even 20 or 30 seconds or even longer, uh, you decide to move, then you do it with mindfulness. You include it in the field of practice. You move. Simple. Move. That's all. No need to judge it. Just move. You move, but you move with mindfulness. Ah, you know, I'm going to move. There's an intention. There's always a thought. Then there's the moving. And then there's a feeling of relief. And then you go back to your breath. See, there's no gap in that. There's seeing things as they are. We're, we're nurturing the continuity in our practice by doing that. If we just move automatically, we're feeding that mind that avoids. Okay, so that's physical pain. Breath, physical pain. Well, we've been talking about the body so far. Balanced effort in relationship to the body. But there's also the mind. Quite obviously, the mind. And, and in many ways, that's our biggest challenge. Our body is going to do what it does has its own law. But the mind, the mind is, is a place to look at. It's a big part of practice is learning to be more and more mindful, more and more attentive. Increasing this ability to observe the mind. Begin to see the mind for what it is. To begin to take a look at monkey mind. To look at that mind without judging it, without criticizing it. No need to. It's just the way things are. But taking a look at it, take a look at it, and looking at it carefully. The Buddha described, uh, described five difficult energies. 
different mind states that do come up in practice, and we've already mentioned some of them. The first one is sense desire. Okay, that's the wanting mind, the if-only mind, the reaching out for pleasant things. That's sense desire. How to deal with that? How to deal with the fantasies, the planning, strategies, projections? Well, with striving, there's, this, there's a tendency to try to push them away, to judge them, to criticize them, to criticize the mind that fantasizes, to criticize the wandering mind. Okay? That's the striving. Being lax, I've already uh, mentioned this, is indulging in those mind states. Um, and so finding the middle ground means recognizing when we're fantasizing. Quite simple, just recognizing it. Seeing it, oh, there it is, mind that fantasizes. As soon as we notice it, we bring mindfulness to it. And it, and it loses its power. Now, it may come back, but the in-seeing it, that's the key, in-seeing it, where uh, the power of the fantasy, what's keeping it powerful is getting lost in it, getting lost, getting caught, getting hooked in it. Seeing it for what it is, generally speaking, with a fantasy mind and with a lot of, fan, uh, with a lot of planning, it tends to dissolve. It tends, oh, there's planning, back to the breath. Ah, there's planning, back to the breath. There's the fantasy mind, back to the breath. So seeing it over and over again, no need to judge it, just, just constantly recognizing it, acknowledging it, and then very gently coming back to the breath. Balanced approach. Second hindrance is aversion. We already talked about aversion to unpleasant physical sensation. But there's also aversion to mental states. You know, when you're sitting there and you're feeling restless or sleepy, probably there's some aversion there too. There may be a, a lack of acceptance of that particular energy, that particular state of mind. It's, a lot of times we think, this isn't what's supposed to be happening. This isn't why I came here. I didn't come here to be sleepy. I didn't come here to be restless all the time. I didn't come here to be agitated. I had more confidence in the practice before I came than after. That's self-doubt. Okay? Be aware of the aversion when it arises. That's the key with aversion. To recognize it over and over again. Ah, there's the judging mind. There's the mind that's criticizing. There's the mind that's condemning. It's just the mind state. It's a reaction. It's a reaction to things that we don't like. It's that simple. It's a reaction to things that we don't like. There's aversion. If we don't recognize it, it tends to get stronger. We get hooked into it. It becomes a hindrance. It in itself is not a hindrance, but if we're caught by it, it is. So seeing it is what frees us. Seeing aversion over and over again. Mindfulness has the power to decondition aversion because mindfulness is non-judgmental observation. It's that power of non-judgmental observation that softens. Aversion. Every time mindfulness comes into contact with aversion, it's working on aversion. It's softening it. It may not be perceptible in the moment, but over a long period of time, the aversion will soften more and more. And that increases our ability to open up more closely, more directly to what, it, what we're being averse to. This is a chance to see the experience much more directly. And if the experience is unpleasant, it's important to look at it and to know it. So aversion is the second um, challenge.
Sometimes it helps. Many of you are already familiar with the practice of metta, loving kindness. You know, if you're experiencing strong aversion, there are a couple things that you can do, more active things to do, than just be mindful. One thing might be that if you're feeling particularly contracted and tight, you know, during your walking meditation, go outdoors. You know, take a bit, take a stroll. You know, take your mindfulness practice with you, but enjoy the sky, enjoy the trees. It's a beautiful place, Barry. Uh, it's some beautiful grounds. And, uh, you know, making some kind of connection to something bigger than maybe just the sitting and walking. Bigger than our, you know, the intensity of our, our little world that we're, we're discovering and creating here. Uh, you know, soften. Look at the trees. Look at the sky. It's a helpful way to soften the aversion. The metta practice. Sending a few words, you know, just a few thoughts of loving kindness to yourself. Remember, that's the way you want to hold your practice, is with loving kindness. It's not going to help to hold your practice with a lot of a judgment, a lot of evaluation. You want to be kind to yourself. So, consciously, you know, arousing a few of those thoughts if you're feeling a lot of contraction or a lot of tightness or a lot of aversion as a way of balancing that particular energy. It's a hard energy to deal with. The, the annoyance, the irritation, the impatience, all those states of mind, the anger. Those are difficult energies to be confronted with. And you need to learn to work with them in a skillful way. One way is mindfulness. Another way is metta. Another way is take a little bit of a walk outdoors, get a little bit of space. Third difficult energy is sloth and torpor, which is sleepiness and dullness. Another difficult one, the striving mind often shows kind of a lack of acceptance. You know, there's a rejecting of the, sl- the sleepiness and the dullness. And that's a, that's a tight energy when we're rejecting sleepiness. Now, it's not fun to be sleepy and to be slugging your way through a sitting. It, nobody enjoys that. It's not, it's not pleasant. It's not the way you want things to be. But if we react to it, if we contract around it, if we try to, uh, if we judge it in any way, if we identify with it, take it as this is who I am, uh, it becomes a lot stronger. It becomes a problem. It becomes a major form of suffering. And it doesn't need to be that way. So much of it depends on your relationship to the sleepiness. You know, if you can relate to it with acceptance, it helps a lot. Okay, I'm sleepy. Okay, fine. Be sleepy. You're sitting up straight. So maybe it's not the position you want to be in, but you're sitting. You know, and you're feeling sleepy. So being with that experience means, of course, being mindful of it. Larry mentioned earlier that it's okay when you're feeling sleepy to take a few moments and pay attention to your body a little bit. Your body's telling you. Sleepiness is a complex process. Open up to it. Pay attention to it. Observe it a little bit. Pay more careful attention to the breath. Pay very careful attention to the breath. It's hard. You know, it's hard to do that when there's not a lot of energy. But making the effort to do that can generate a lot of energy. If all else fails, just try to stay in the body itself. In other words, just sit there. Sit there. Just feel the cushion. Keep it simple. Feel the cushion. Feel the floor. Try to stay present. The effort with sleepiness is to, to stay as present as you can be with whatever you can be present with. Now, we're working with the breath, so you want to keep coming back to that. But also, there are other body sensations, feeling the cushion, very helpful way of coming more and more into the present. Walking. uh, 
an ancient anecdote for sleepiness and torpor is a 2,500 year old anecdote is cold water in the face. Cold water in the face. There's plenty of bathrooms around. Go in, wash your face with cold water. It helps. You've got to be a little bit more active sometimes with that, with that low energy. One of the things we learn in working with all these hindrances, and, and certainly it's true with sleepiness, you know, a lot of times when these particular hindrances, whether it's fantasizing, planning, being distracted, uh, whether it's a lot of aversion in the mind, whether it's a lot of sleepiness and dullness, a lot of times um, we start wondering, like, wh- why sit through it? Why not do something else? Uh, and especially with sleepiness, there's a lot of questions come up about, like, you know, why don't I get a few more hours of sleep or take a few hour break from the practice or whatever it is. I'm not really doing myself any good just sitting here and and being sleepy. I can't even see a breath. I can't even feel an in-breath, not even one. So why am I sitting here? What's the benefit? There's tremendous benefit. Okay, That's what I want to say. There's tremendous benefit in sitting there, even if you're sleepy, even if you can't pay attention to the breathing. The willingness to sit there, you're nurturing a power you're nurturing an ability, uh, an ability to be. Uh, uh, you're nurturing a resolve, really is what is how I see it. It takes a lot of resolve to sit there, and it takes a lot of resolve to do this practice. And by willingly sitting there and being as and as patient as you can be with yourself, you're nurturing this ability to be present. You're nurturing this ability um, to. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. Lost that train of thought. The fourth is restlessness. Okay, that, that agitated, restless place. Striving, once again, there's a lack of acceptance with restlessness. Um, there's a tendency, uh, uh, because we don't accept it, it, the restlessness, we feed the restlessness. Okay? Trying to get rid of the restlessness in some way, having a lot of judgments about it, that feeds the restlessness also. That's the striving mind. Uh, when we're lax with restlessness, we're moving. We're fidgeting. We're moving and fidgeting all the time. And the problem with moving and fidgeting, there's no, no inherent judgment. It's not like you're doing something wrong because you're moving and fidgeting and scratching and kind of moving about. Uh, there's no inherent uh, bad thing about that except for the fact that uh, by doing it, you're strengthening the, the restlessness difficult thing about that particular approach is the restlessness just gets stronger. It gets stronger. The more you move, the more you fidget, the, the, the stronger the restlessness gets. The more difficult it is to, to, to find a balance, to find some uh, modicum of peace when feeling restless. The balanced approach is, first of all, to acknowledge the restlessness itself, to recognize it as a state of mind. Very simply, to recognize restlessness as a state of mind period. Paying careful attention to the breath. One of the reasons restlessness comes up regularly is because there's a lack of concentration. The mind isn't focused. So by paying careful attention to the breath, bringing some more interest to it, a lot of times that will help focus the mind. The mind gets more concentrated and it quiets down. Over and over again I've seen that with restlessness. Just come back to the breath. It doesn't matter if you're restless. Uh, Just keep coming back to the breath over and over again and the restlessness passes. 
Another way of working with restlessness, another way of stretching a bit with restlessness, is to take a vow for the next five minutes. I'm not going to move an inch. I'm not going to budge one muscle. I, I, even if the body's leaning, I'm going to sit totally, absolutely still, despite the restlessness. That's a powerful practice. That's a powerful practice. It has, it has the, the ability to settle the mind down. Brings that restlessness into balance. So try it. It doesn't have to be five minutes. It can even be one or two minutes. It's surprising how often we're moving when we think we're sitting still. So getting centered in the body and refusing to move when you're feeling restless and see what happens. Experiment. And finally, the last energy is self-doubt. In some ways, self-doubt, we save it for the last because it's the most challenging in some ways because it tends to undermine our effort in practice. When we get caught up in that particular state of mind of self-doubt, that's different than inquiring or questioning. Self-doubt is we're carrying a lot of ideas about ourselves. We have a certain self-image. Uh, there's a legacy of the past. All of us have a past that's conditioned the way we respond to certain experiences. And self-doubt is part of that legacy. It undermines our effort, that feeling like we can't do it or we're doing something wrong. The most important step you can make in self, working with self-doubt is to recognize self-doubt, to recognize it as a state of mind. There's a strong tendency to believe self-doubt, to believe it as a, a, a very truthful comment about where you are in your practice. And it's not. It's just self-doubt. It's a state of mind that arises under certain conditions and passes away. And the conditions that it arises under is when there are other hindrances are present. When things are going not the way we want them to be going, that's when self-doubt arises. It's that simple. When things are going well, when things are quiet and we're concentrated, well, self-doubt usually isn't there. We're feeling a lot of confidence. You know, we feel pretty inspired. Uh, you know, we start giving Dharma talks. Uh, you know, whatever it is, but self-doubt isn't there. You know, self-doubt isn't there. Self-doubt comes up with the other hindrances. That's a helpful thing to know. And Part of self-knowledge, part of maturity and practice is recognizing the conditions in which self-doubt arise. And self-doubt is not just a problem for new, new folks. Self-doubt is, is a difficult energy for people who have been practicing for a while. Because one thing that happens to most people who practice is there's a tendency to keep raising the bar you know, of what it means to progress in practice. And of course that keeps reinforcing. We never quite get there. And so we're dealing a lot with self-doubt. And... Uh, so for older students, people who have been practicing for a while, it can be very, very subtle. Very, very subtle in terms of how self-doubt expresses itself. Because we know we have a lot of confidence in the practice. We've invested a lot of years in the practice. So we don't think we have self-doubt. But it's surprising where and how it shows up. So recognizing that state of mind of self-doubt is the balanced approach. Rather than buying into it, rather than getting hooked into it, it's very seductive energy that energy that doesn't think you can do it, the energy that gets discouraged because things are not going the way we want them to go. Coming into the present moment means recognizing that energy of self-doubt.
the Buddha compared you know, the untrained mind to monkey mind, to the wild monkey. He compared the mind that was serene and calm, the mind that was trained to a clear forest pool. His description of that pool metaphor, I think it's a wonderful metaphor. Uh, how it applies to the hindrances is uh, astonishingly accurate. The first of sense desire is that forest pool filled with colored dyes. Colored dyes. It's the mind that fantasizes. Aversion is boiling water, boiling hot springs. That's aversion. Sleepiness and dullness, a thick layer of algae. Thick layer of algae. It feels exactly like that. Thick layer of algae. The fourth is restlessness. Restlessness is strong winds blowing the surface of the water. Strong winds blowing the surface. The fifth is doubt. And doubt is mud stirred up from the bottom. Mud stirred up from the bottom. With gentle determination, the mind quiets down. The mind quiets down. But the effort is to, we have to put the effort in. And right now the effort is to pay attention to each moment of your experience. Each moment of your experience is as important as each moment of your experience. So coming back to the breath over and over again, we're training our minds to sustain that attention that quality of attention. And the mind will quiet down by itself. We don't have to interfere. We don't have to get rid of any of the hindrances. We just have to know them from moment by moment. And then the mind reveals its its unconditioned nature. And then we can discover peace that lasts so much longer than all these impermanent uh, pursuits. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.